in 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to look at chapter 1. My original goal was to then have some lessons from Thanksgiving at the end, because we're coming into Thanksgiving. Uh, Given the time constraints, I may just have to scan that and say maybe you could look at it later on the website. But if you go to PressWoodExamine.org, you will see the PDF of what I'm going to be covering and even some of the material I might just have to scan through very quickly so we can get out on time. But it is available there, and also later uh, Fred will post the uh, audio for that. So that is available to you, plus all the other messages. So we are going to focus some of our time and attention on that today. But turn with me if you would, to Second Thessalonians. For those of you, most of you in the class have been with me over these last few months. As we've gone through First Thessalonians, we have seen that Paul is writing. This is one of the first letters he's ever written. And as he is writing, he's concerned about whether or not, since he only spent three Sabbaths with them, only basically three weeks, how are they doing? He gets a good report. Now we come to the second letter, and a little bit different, and we'll notice that the tone is different because he's a little concerned that some of the issues he was concerned about expressed in the first letter now have surfaced, and we'll see that in the second letter. So let's get to the first couple of verses in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty straightforward, two verses, but again, the tone is a little bit different because now there's a crisis that has erupted in Thessalonica, and we'll talk about that. And he's warned them, as we'll see next Sunday, that he was concerned that he did not want them to be quickly shaken uh, because there was some false teaching going around, which was not true, and so he spends some time talking about that. It's interesting that he starts out with grace and peace. Those are fairly common ways to open any of the letters that Paul writes and was very typical at the time because grace was a very common Greek uh, greeting and peace, of course, a very common Jewish greeting. And so in some respects kind of summarizes the gospel very quickly there. And because of God's grace towards us, of course, we have peace in our relationship. And so, again, we're emphasizing, as I think Pastor Graham did today, such a good job of uh, once again reminding us of the Great Commission. Uh, As Suzanne knows, um, because we have at Pro Ministries published this huge survey of both non-Christians and Christians, I think I counted up the other day, I've already done 32 radio and television interviews. That's in addition to the radio program I do. Gives me something to do. But nevertheless, all these interviews, and sadly, one of the things that's come from that is the younger generation, Generation Y and Generation Z, they tend to be, as we have determined from the survey, much more pluralistic. Uh, For example, uh, one of the questions was, uh, do you agree that people can be saved by Jesus, Buddha, and Muhammad? And nearly two-thirds agreed with that, even those that were claiming to be born-again Christians. And uh, we find through some of the other surveys they've done that when you talk about the Great Commission, they don't even know what the Great Commission is. So isn't it wonderful to be at a church that talks about the Great Commission, talks about missions, uh, really is evangelistically oriented? And so I just wanted to drop that in real quickly because, if nothing else, uh, some of the interviews I've been doing over the last couple of months is just a reminder that uh, we need more churches doing what we are doing right now, the essential gospel. There are people that may be saved in their hearts, but they're not thinking biblically in their heads. 
Let's go on, though, verses 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. And here again, he's thankful, and what a great opportunity as we're coming to a Thanksgiving week here. Thankful in this case for their strong faith, for their love, and here I think you see a difference. You notice in the first letter, he talked about faith, love, and hope. This time, he talks about faith and love. What's missing? Hope. Now, one of the commentaries I saw said this was not an accident. This was making a theological statement. By listening to these false prophets, they no longer had hope. So there is a difference in the tone, which I understand is a little more evident in the Greek, but you can still see it in the English because here he talks about faith and love, but not hope. And they had actually believed, or at least some of them had believed, that the second coming had already happened. It made me think about uh, something I do, a program, as uh, Parker said, called Point of View. And back in 1986, you might remember there was this book called 86 Reasons for the Rapture in 1986. Remember this? Okay, some of you that are older shake your head because the rest of you go, I don't even know what you're talking about. But it turns out that at Point of View, we actually had a a locked door to get into the observation room, but not a locked door to get from the observation room into the studio. And so one of the people that had read this book and was convinced the end times has already come was actually tried to get in the door into the studio. Um, and so those of you that have ever come to Point of View now know that you end up with a locked door. So you can watch it if we let you in through the other one. And isn't it interesting? All the years we've had Point of View, it's going to now have its 50th anniversary. The only time we've ever had somebody rush the studio was not a homosexual activist, not a, a progressive, as it was somebody who believed that the rapture had already taken place. <laughs> but nevertheless, it illustrates how what happened in the first century even happened to us in 1986 and why we have uh, locked doors at point of view because you just never know who's going to want to come in, grab the microphone, and warn the world about what's taking place. Anyway, let's go on from that uh, crazy situation that happened so long ago. But again, he's also talking about the fact that he's boasting. Now, again, you're not talking about boasting about your skills, but here it wasn't really even boasting about the Thessalonians, but really about Christ's work in them. And so he wasn't talking about their talents or the buildings or anything else, but about faith and perseverance in the Holy Spirit. And I thought that was interesting that he was talking about boasting in who they are as well. If you haven't noticed, I'm keeping this moving a little bit faster so we'll get out on time. But let's now start in verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from the heaven with his mighty angels. And so what you see here is, of course, when you are being afflicted or being persecuted, you want to retaliate. But I wanted to kind of back off and help you understand that this whole section now is written in poetry. 
Now, let's be honest, when you were in middle school or high school and you had to read poetry, you probably weren't very interested. But I'm going to actually say that what you learned about poetry might actually apply here. Because all of these, if you read it in the Greek, are actually in couplets, are parallel passages. And in the Hebrew, certainly when it was written in Hebrews, but now this is, of course, written in Greek, but still, these couplets, you would have a first line, and then the second line either is a contrast to that or a repetition. And this suggests that what we're reading right here might have been one of the first, if you will, early church catechisms, because they were put in a way in which it would be easy to learn, easy to memorize, and maybe gives us a little bit of an idea of what that first century church might have been like. And one of the things is that some people have suggested this could be part of an ancient Christian hymn or a creed or even a catechism. So let's look at a couple of those examples. First of all, we're going to be talking about judgment. Any visitors here, I want you to know we were not a class that every week talk about hellfire and judgment, okay? So I want you to understand that if you say, I can't believe they're talking about judgment today. I'm never coming back to this class. No, this is just we cover whatever's in the text, and we're going to get into judgment. But here, isn't it interesting that you see that first couplet or that first parallelism, affliction to those who afflict you, next verse, and to those who are afflicted, relief with us. What's the relief? These individuals are facing persecution. In Thessalonica, a Greek culture, one where, first of all, you had the Greeks against you, you might have had the Romans against you, and you certainly had the Jews against you. It was very difficult to be a believer in Thessalonica. And so as a result, there was, well, we are being persecuted, and what Paul is reminding them is, is yes, from an earthly point of view, those who are persecuting you look like they're winning But guess what? There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be an ultimate reckoning when Christ returns. And there will be affliction to those who have been afflicting you. And so that was an attempt to give them a little bit of an opportunity to know that even if they are suffering here on earth, when the final judgment comes, you're going to be glad that you're on this side and not on the other side. Let's talk about that a little bit more, because this day of judgment he's talking about is a day which would be punishing for the wicked. But it would also be a time of vindication for the righteous. So when we hear this phrase, day of judgment, there's a sense in which it's judgment for those who are against Christ, but it's actually salvation and even joy for those who are in Christ. And so in this context, he's talking about those who have been mistreated, those who have been oppressed, maybe those who have been persecuted. And there will be a time in which there will be a final judgment that takes place. And the suffering of this persecution, I gave you a couple of verses you might want to write down, because Christ reminded us that we will face tribulation. But be a good cheer, I've overcome the world. And we see that in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You certainly see that in John chapter 15. And so that's what is being communicated there. Then we go uh, into a little bit more about what this judgment looks like in verse 7. And I'm going to repeat that intentionally. Because in verse 7 it talks about to grant relief to those who are afflicted. And when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in his mind, the angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel and on the Lord Jesus. 
they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. If you needed any justification or any kind of emotional desire to share the good news and engage in the Great Commission, it is this passage, isn't it? Because indeed, it talks about again this day of judgment. Now, in the Old Testament, the day of judgment was called the day of the Lord. And that was the Lord Father, God the Father. What Paul does here is he also transfers that from God the Father to also what? God the Son. Because now he makes it clear that the Lord in this case is Christ. And so you can see the difference. Paul, of course, studying in the Old Testament, probably had memorized much of the Old Testament, probably uh, was aware of everything from the Talmud and the Mishnah and all the Jewish ideas. When they talked about the day of the Lord, they meant the Lord Father. But he now adds to that the Lord Christ who comes in judgment. And again, this imagery then harkens back, if you want to make a footnote to that, to the vision that you see in Daniel. Because at one point, there's this vision that Daniel has of the throne of God. And here, again, it harkens back to this, with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And so you can hear some of the verses if you wanted to make some notes. It would be a great kind of um, devotional this week if you wanted to look at this idea of judgment. Not something we look at too often, but it certainly will give us motivation. In Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, it says this. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Some people ask, how many angels? Well, at least that many. That's a lot of, um, we're getting into almost astronomical numbers here. Isaiah uses the same kind of illustration in Isaiah chapter 66. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. Do you want to be at the end of the tribulation during that day when Christ comes in judgment? Do you want any of your friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members to be there? This should give us great motivation because here it talks about the Lord Jesus will come in flaming fire to judge. As we said before, whether you look at Jesus or even some cases Paul, sometimes they spend more time talking about hell and judgment than they do even about heaven and glory. And I think it's a reminder of that. Jesus, of course, talks about this final judgment, not based on our works, as Pastor Graham said today, but whether or not we know him. Have we believed in our heart? Have we confessed with our mouth? And have we believed in our heart, as we just talked about here? And again, it equates those who do not know God also with those who disobey the gospel of Jesus. To disobey the gospel is to reject reconciliation with God that the gospel brings, which means that those who do not know Jesus don't really know God. It's a very sobering passage, but here Paul's trying to drive home the need for those in Thessalonica, the Thessalonian church that is fairly embryonic, to get it right about what this means. And that now brings us to another one of those, if you will, Hebrew couplets in Greek, because he talks about they're away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
Now, the implication here is, is that they didn't want a relationship with God, so they were set away from God. There's some people that have actually described hell as a divine refuge. Just think about that. If you just reject God, and we certainly know some very prominent atheists right now that reject the idea of God, nothing would be more punishing than to be in the presence of a holy and righteous God that you've rejected and to still be in your sins. So in a sense, it isn't that God sends them to that judgment. They made a choice that sent them to that judgment. And again, if being in God's presence is the fullness of joy, we see that in Psalm 16, what's it like to be out of the presence of God? You meet some people say, you know, we're just all going to go to hell, we're going to drink beer, and I'll be there with all my buddies. That's not exactly what you see in the Scriptures, right? You've heard that phrase before, no doubt. Because if eternal life comes in knowing God, then not knowing Him means exclusion from eternal life eternal death and destruction. And again, I give you a very famous passage in Matthew 25. Very sobering indeed. But finally, let's also recognize that what he wants them to do is to persevere through suffering. And we see this in verses 10 and following. Because he says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, there's the good news there, and to be marveling at whom all have believed, because our testimony to you is believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Had to end with a positive, right? Because this is what happens for those of us that are believers. Because it now goes back to one of those last couplets. To be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. You know, one of the questions I've gotten from Ask Kirby, and we'll get to some of those next week, was, you know, if indeed the gospel needs to be preached to the entire world... Um, there are some places where the gospel simply has not been preached. And so I want to next week talk about the progress that has been made in terms of reaching some of these unreached people groups. And we'll talk about that as well. Uh, we have an individual who's been on my program who works with Paul Eshelman. Some of you in the room know who he is. And we, I want to give you some of those facts and figures. But here is a good example marveling at, look at this, all who have believed. Isn't that our goal? To just be astounded by all the individuals that are standing before the throne and worshiping uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see a good example of that in 1 Corinthians 15 because it tells us that believers will be glorified in Him. A couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the book by Lee Strobel, The Case for Heaven, talked about how we will maybe even shine, we'll be glorified, we'll have our heavenly bodies which, as we get older, we're looking for the next one, right? We certainly need, you know, uh, Earth Suit 2.0, right? We're looking for that real quickly. But again, at the second coming, we'll see Christ coming in all His glory. We will be part of that, I believe, as well. And we'll receive this new, glorified, imperishable body. And I think many of us, as we get older, are looking forward to that as well. This teaching also talks about the fact that God will be glorified, and this is kind of the opening prayer. That's how he opens, 
and this is how now he brings it back, that the name of Jesus, if you will, his reputation in the world would be glorified in them. And really the testimony at that time of the believers in Thessalonica was being pronounced to Achaia and Berea, Macedonia. But again, not just in the end times, but I think he's talking about just in their day-to-day ideas, because every resolve for good, every work for faith of his power, he's talking about right now you're testifying, and as you are doing that, you're also bringing glory to God. And this goodness that people see in us ultimately comes from the Holy Spirit. It's not that we can make ourselves good, but rather that it is um, not our good works or works of power, but it is the fact that the Holy Spirit gives us that power to live a godly life. So when we hear this idea of the works of the Spirit, we tend to think of miracles and healing and things like that. But I think the works of the Spirit, as we um, mentioned last time, you look at all the gifts of Spirit and all the stained glass out here, it's just a reminder of the fact that that is the Holy Spirit working in us and manifesting such a difference. And I do believe that just as Paul is saying, you as first century believers, because of showing the gifts of the Spirit, are really a positive testimony to the world. So also now for us in the 21st century, given the polarization of our world, given the decadence of our world, if we live godly lives before the watching world, people are going to be attracted to the gospel because we're going to say, What do you have that I don't have? Because I am stressed out. I'm full of anxiety. I do not have hope. And you seem to have that. And I think there's a great opportunity. So our good works are not really our own, but they're the fruit of the Spirit working in us according to the grace of God, as he says in verse 12, that we might glorify him. So that's the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians. Next week, we'll get to the second chapter. But I have just a little bit more of time, but I'm probably going to at least have to encourage you maybe to go to the website if you'd like to do a little bit more. Because as we come to Thanksgiving, this is a time in which maybe we can learn some lessons of Thanksgiving. Not the least of which is the pilgrims, who were those called the separatists, actually came to this country. And they wanted to actually establish a colony in what was called Virginia. Uh, but instead actually were landing in Cape Cod. But we see already God's provision because if they had actually come there even just a few years earlier, one of the most um, fierce tribes of the region, the Patuxent tribe, would have been wiping them out. But interesting enough, in 1617, three years before they came, they were pretty much wiped out by a plague. So it turns out that the pilgrims landed in one of the safest places possible. But in the process, they did meet one survival of that tribe, and his name was Squanto. It turns out that he had been kidnapped. He was taken to England, lived in Spain for a while, learned English. And when he found out that there were people that had come and planted a colony in Plymouth, he came out of the brush speaking English and surprised all of them. And it turns out that Squanto uh, actually learned that they were there. He showed them how to plant corn, how to fertilize fish. William Bradford said that Squanto was a special interest sent of God for their good beyond their expectation. And I think a good example of God's provision for them. 
Some of the political lessons we can think about is that before they disembarked from the Mayflower, they did not have a charter for that region, so they established what was now today called the Mayflower Compact. And yet here, 150 years before the Constitution, we had basically the first Constitution in America. And Winston Churchill talked about the fact that they drew up a solemn compact. It was one of the most remarkable documents in history. Uh, another historian, Paul Johnson, who is a British historian, said, what is remarkable about this particular contract was that it was not between a servant and a master or a people and a king, but between a group of like-minded individuals and each one with God as their witness and symbolic co-signatory. So one of the lessons we learned there is the establishment of what today we take for granted a republic based upon some of those rights. We also have some of the great economic lessons they learned because one of the problems was is because the colony was established by those in England, they were to actually farm the land and then they would put all of the proceeds and all the produce in common stores. So each would work according to their ability and then each would receive according to their need. I'm using a phrase that was later used by a man by the name of Karl Marx. And because there was joint property, what happened very quickly is some people that worked very hard said, well, why am I working so hard when other people are a little more listless? Because everybody gets whatever comes into the store and there was no opportunity for any kind of uh, initiative or entrepreneurial activity. And so William Bradford saw that very quickly and seeing the failure of this communal farming began to assign plots of land to each family so that then individuals were challenged to better themselves and receive the benefits of their hard work. And so they moved from kind of a socialist-communist argument and uh, structure to one that was more of a free market kind of structure. And again, this happened in 1621, long before even Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776. Uh, a lesson maybe we need to learn today, since we're seeing so many more people are promoting socialism as a solution. But I thought I'd end very quickly, since we do uh, want to get you out on time, by Abraham Lincoln. Why is it that we have Thanksgiving in the first place? Well, there's an interesting story. A woman by the name of Sarah Josepha Hale convinced then-President Abraham Lincoln to declare a National Day of Thanksgiving. Now, you'd had some days of Thanksgiving that were done in New England. Uh, certainly, William Bradford established those, and later on, they were traditions that were carried on for a while. But she encouraged him to actually have a day of Thanksgiving and issue a Thanksgiving proclamation. Interestingly enough, it came at a pivotal time in the life, in the spiritual life of Abraham Lincoln, because the Battle of Gettysburg occurred just three months before that. And Abraham Lincoln acknowledges that he gave his life to Christ when he walked among the graves of Gettysburg. I don't think most people know that, but if you go and find a letter that he actually wrote to a clergyman, this is how Abraham Lincoln described his spiritual journey. When I left Springfield, I asked the people to pray for me. I was not a Christian. When I buried my son, the severest trial of my life, I was not a Christian. But when I went to Gettysburg and saw the graves of thousands of our soldiers, I then and there consecrated myself to Christ. When he issued this Thanksgiving proclamation as president, 
Ask yourself how many presidents today, whether this one or the ones previous, would say what he said when he issued this Thanksgiving proclamation. This is what Abraham Lincoln wrote. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. So he concludes, it behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offending power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. That's what a president said when he issued a Thanksgiving proclamation. Some of you around the Thanksgiving table might want to talk about that, and so I provide that, of course, on our website. We also have a Thanksgiving quiz at probe.org. Suzanne and I developed that years ago because, you know, during Thanksgiving, we'd always go around and say, okay, kids, tell us what you're thankful for. And after hearing kids say, well, I'm thankful for my cat or my stuffed animal, I said, okay, we've got to do a lot better than this. So I put together two dozen questions about Thanksgiving, some fairly easy that the kids can get, some a little more complex. And you're free to take that Thanksgiving quiz to just kind of get the conversation talking about what are we really thankful for in this country. But again, wouldn't it be something to have a president or a leader say what he has said? So my argument is we are coming to conclude today. During this Thanksgiving season, maybe we could learn some of the wisdom of the pilgrims. They valued their religious freedom. They were willing to live first England and then leave the Netherlands to come here and lose half of the people that were on the Mayflower. Fifty-one people died that first year because they wanted to have religious freedom. They were willing to endure hardship to have religious freedom. And at a time today when sometimes we lose and seem to be losing some of our religious freedom, maybe we need to talk again about what to do. They also valued their political freedom, drafted the Mayflower Compact, and recognized God's sovereign hand in their lives. And if nothing else, we see that they also spent some time talking about the economic benefits that came by actually encouraging people to work and to work hard. So if nothing else, let's enjoy this Thanksgiving week. But most importantly, on Thanksgiving Day, let's thank God for what he has blessed us and blessed this country with. Parker?